The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now and leave a message at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. There you can ask a question via the listener inquiry button as well as listen to old archive shows. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you all today. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Scott. So to share or not to share, is this something to do with the season of giving we have here, Andy? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's a great theme, Andy. Yeah. I Happy know, holidays. I thought, uh, <laughs> here we are. Happy holidays. And uh, now let's talk about how we, we divide up our finances within our, <laughs> within our married household. <laughs> But, um, you know, it, it, this is something that's always fascinated me, and I sort of keep track of it in the back of my mind as I'm meeting with um, uh, potential clients and, and new clients. And I'm always curious as to how people handle their finances personally, whether they smush them together and everybody works from the same operating account, or, uh, or do people keep separate finances and, uh, and do their own thing? And so well, we um, could take a poll amongst the three of us how we all do it for that matter. Well, I'll tell you my situation. So it's interesting because for years we were absolutely separate. And <laughs> my wife had her own. <laughs> she wanted to be in charge. She said, I don't want to feel guilty if I spend some money on something. And, I, and she's always used the, used the example if she were going to buy me a gift. She doesn't want me to see what the gift was going to cost or where it came from in advance. So in an effort to surprise me and give shower me with gifts, <laughs> she elected she elects to have a separate bank. That's what I'm saying. My goodness, your birthday must come like three or four times a year. I know. <laughs> and how is that showering of gifts going, by the way? Well... You know, so actually, so flash forward in the last couple of years, we've actually merging our finances together. So we've gone from, you know, the the great wall in between <laughs> to, to now it's more like a Trump wall where there's a lot of holes that are happening. So, <laughs> so we... Um, we're actually uh, working more from the same page than ever before. And, uh, and I think that's probably something to do with just, you know, as you're marching towards retirement, maybe people are finally, she's figured, ah, I guess I'm going to hang around with you. I don't have to worry about separate finances. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll roll with it. And so she's coming, she's slowly coming around to it. And how about you, Don? I have always been one account and we just shared it from day one. We've never had more than one account. When we got married, she closed hers and, merged it into mine because mine had less fees way back because I had a student account. And we've kept that account, same account number now, for 34 and a half years. Very romantic. Yeah. And how about you, Scott? <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't hear the question. I think I must have a... I must have a loose connection here. No, I'm... Uh, the fifth. I, I, uh, I'm sort of with Andy. Uh, our started kind of uh, separately, but as things come in and complicate the issue slowly they they merge anyway right right so, so and, there, um, case in point andy very similar like everybody has a different way of managing it yeah exactly and uh well this sort of bubbled up again as i was 
looking at um, you know the new dating environment, and and you know I don't know about you guys, but I've, we've also had some friends that have uh, divorced in the last couple of years, and as they are thinking and looking at new partners in their relationship, finances and everything becomes a lot more uh, important discussion. Where it didn't, it wasn't a discussion when I got married in my twenties. I mean, we were just you know two young people with nothing trying to grind it out. And so, um, you know, but today, more than ever, new couples and young couples are very interested in where their partners sit in terms of their financial situation and also how they're going to run their finances. And I think that's partly due to, um, uh, you know, there's been improved financial literacy over the last, you know, 30 plus years. People are uh, becoming more and more educated about financial issues and, uh and the benefits of having um, shared financial goals, et cetera, when it comes to your financial plan. So, but a study that I was looking at and some reading on this is about half of us, about 50%. So I don't know if we fall into this uh, 50% rule, but uh, the three of us, but anyway, 50% of people today maintain separate bank accounts from their partners. And, um, so, you know, in a good, if you're fighting over, if you're fighting over, always fighting over sort of shared expenses or splitting finances, it might be worth it for you just to keep things separate, right? It just mm-hmm. tends to lower down, lower the, the temperature and uh, reduce the uh, arguments as well. So 50% of separate bank accounts. So what's the downside to, sh- to uh, shared finances? So if we think about those that, that want to combine things, smush them together, um, pooling your income expenses, I think the downsides probably number one would be a lack of financial independence. So a lot of times people feel that joint checking account or joint credit card can be a hassle in terms of trying to coordinate splitting it. So um, if you're not 100% on, on, with each other in terms of your discretionary spending and purchases, it may be better to, uh, to keep things separate, right? Because you're not going to have as many arguments. Um, number two would be unwanted scrutiny over purchases. So if you, you know, are you okay with your partner's spending habits? Maybe, maybe not, but you probably made some boneheaded, uh, impulse purchases over the years that you had a few <laughs> discussions about. And, uh, but you also might want to have some privacy around say holiday presents and things like that, which I already talked about. So having that, um, uh, having that separate, uh, anonymity is uh, is nice at certain times for sure. Uh, different spending goals. Now this kind of falls right back into from our financial planning discussions. So one person in the partnership, maybe they want to pay down debt quickly, get rid of that credit card, get rid of some high interest uh, loans that they have, whereas the other person is sort of arguing more towards uh, you know a better, a more balanced, how they're spending their money or maybe thinking about investing instead of uh, paying down debt. So, you know, you end up having to have sort of a referee, maybe that's Dawn or I, as we come into the situation, referee over how best to uh, focus your your spending goals. Uh, The next one would be more backup plan and sort of back to what I was talking about in terms of uh, marriage breakdown or relationship breakdown. If your relationship goes south for some reason, and now you find yourself going through that breakup and trying to peel apart those combined accounts can, uh, can add a lot of stress, you know, trying to get people. And in fact, I had one uh, client who um, they had a joint, they had pretty much everything joint, and one of them was a joint line of credit. 
Well, trying to get her name off that joint line of credit uh, after their separation was near, nearly impossible. And uh, to the extent that um, her partner, she, he was actually still accessing it and putting money onto the line of credit. So that was very stressful in terms of uh, trying to unsmoosh these things that have been put together. So um, I think that the, uh, the the main thing, obviously, as you, if you're married and you're, or you're living common law, is to try to get, get together on the same page as far as your money. And so when you think about um, uh, splitting, uh, if you're going to keep things separate, uh, how do you then account for shared expenses? So things like rent and utilities, etc. And so there are a number of different ways that people like to hand out, handle that. One could be sharing equally. So all your expenses, you sort of sit down and you split them down the middle, easy to calculate. Everybody, you know, pays half the rent, half the utilities, half this, you know, so everybody's paying half. And, um, and that can work. But it really doesn't, you know, you run into some problems if somebody has um, one half of the couple, say, staying at home as a caregiver for children, or maybe one person's gone back to school, they're not fully employed, so they're not making as much money, so it's a bit more of a hardship. So a second strategy might be what they call proportional sharing. So a proportional sharing where couples, if their incomes are particularly different, you know, one makes 150000 and one makes 50000 um, then, you know, they would cover a greater proportion of the expenses. So let's say you had uh, one earns uh, 70% of the household income. So they would pay 70% of the rent, for example. So rent was 2000 a month, they'd pay $1,400, and the other person would pay $600. So proportional sharing can work out quite well. You just sort of, you're, and it's easy to calculate. How much, did you, how much are you grossing for the year? How much is the other person grossing for the year? Now we have a total household income, and you can allocate the percentages. Uh, and then the sort of uh, hybrid of that would be proportional by usage. So some things people use more than others uh, in terms of expenses, um, and some things are probably shared equally. So, for example, um, uh, you know, you might, if somebody has bad spending habits, you don't want to have to pay proportionately for that. So keeping an eye on where that money's going, uh, that discretionary spending, you know, you maybe have an agreed upon threshold, you know, the first, you know, $300 a month or $400 a week of discretionary spending, we're not going to worry about, but anything beyond that, uh, you're going to pay for it yourself. So you just have to sort of navigate those split accounts by keeping, uh, by keeping things separately. So now I'm going to flip the tables and go, what three reasons why you should combine finances. And number one, it bubbles right up to the top is simplicity. And, uh, you know, so combining accounts makes it so much easier for couples to manage their money. Um, you can accelerate your access to things like um, credit card points because you're combining and because you get elevated points based on uh, a larger spending per month per card. Um, and divvying up money all the time and divvying up expenses can be problematic. You have to be disciplined about it. You have to be doing it every month to sort of keep on track. So simplicity is certainly a uh, winner in that. Number two would be visibility. And Don and I talk about keeping track of your finances, your spending money coming in and money going out. And it's certainly easier when you've got all the money that's going into one place and all the expenses coming out of one place, much easier to track. And uh, you can even focus in on certain goals. You know, some credit cards give you more points if you're spending 
uh, on, say, food or entertainment. And other points, uh, other cards maybe give you more. So you can focus your spending to accelerate your points. And then finally, number three would be motivating you towards common goals. I think that really helps you focus. Let's say you're going to buy a house together or you're going to save for a vacation together. Seeing that common goal together and seeing the money accumulate in that common account, I think, really accelerates what everyone is thinking about. And finally, on that um, common goal thing, maybe one person has an excellent pension plan, so they're actually putting more into savings for down the road. And then so the other person who doesn't have as great a pension plan at work or a group RSP, they could actually be the person that spends or pays for more of the expenses to try and equalize that. So it's a sort of shared goal and allows you to sort of manipulate your finances in that way. So the jury's still out. There's no right or wrong reason, but uh, it's Christmas time. Everybody should share. What the <laughs> <heck>? <laughs> whatever, whatever brings you peace in the valley. Uh, we are the biggest pl- one right there. That's it. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now and leave a message at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. Quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call them now. Leave a message at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old archive shows or ask a question via the listener inquiry button. You know, with uh, 47 channels and nothing's on, more, to, more, more like 47 700 channels and nothing's on. We're seeing lots of commercials, especially lately, uh, in regard to trading and doing it yourself and and this sort of thing. And uh, there seems to be a lot of options out there. Yes, and the one that keeps coming to the forefront, and I know my wife and I, we watch TV and we just cringe when this one comes up. And it's kind of the most hated commercial for any financial planner out there. And that is the Quest Trade Marketing commercial. And they do have a couple of good points. You know, I, I give them some credit. They're, they're effective, first of all, the, the commercials, but very deceptive. And I'll go through why it's deceptive. But first of all, if you're dealing with a, an advisor or a bank or whoever who does not give you any value, there's no value, you're not getting seen. And like their one commercial says, well, you get 15 minutes a year. You know what? You should be looking around. Never, whether it's quest trade or whether it's a different institution or a, a totally different financial planner but the right to look around is always there and we totally appreciate that but it does fail to acknowledge the fact that advisors advisors make it a net positive impact on the excess in excess of any fees they charge so that part is totally ignored and that whole 30 percent richer promise I'll, I'll go to that in a second um, you know later a little later on but it is extremely misleading. In fact, I think it's just an outright lie. So I'll go through this a little bit. But, yeah, like we said, they, they focus uh, a lot um, attacking the advisory industry, questioning our values, and above all, they really just focus on is cost. And point one is there is room for everybody out there. We are, Andy and I, we are not everything to everybody, without question. And I don't know about you, Andy, um, I've never had any money move from one of my clients move to Questrade. How about yourself? No, that's true. I, I have I have neither. So no. it's 
to me, it's, they're not really our competitors. So it, it is a kind of a do-it-yourselfer. And so, you know, the reality is there's room for anybody out there, and some like to have very much total control. And they are your do-it-yourselfers. They don't want advice. Others want to, you know, just look at cost, and they just try to look at whatever's the cheapest way. And others want to have, you know, very much a relationship with the financial planner, making sure we, we focus on their goals. So everybody is a little different. It's kind of interesting, though. There are some clients that simply just are there to speculate, and they're, and they're looking at saying investing and speculating. Very, very, they almost consider them the same thing, when in reality, extremely different. So if some client of mine calls me and says, oh, Don, I got $10,000 and I'm, I'm looking to day trade Tesla, we're really not into that. And if you want to go to a discount broker that will charge you $5 a trade, something like that, you know, go for it. But it would not, obviously, we don't look at that as financial planning. In fact, financial planning is far greater, as we've talked about all the time, far greater than investment planning. And there's a lot more than, than that out there. So, you know, we look at a lot of other things, of course, such as the risk tolerance and rebalancing. The focus on, comp- on, on comprehensive financial planning is far greater than that. It's the tax planning, the estate planning. So it's, that's probably why we don't lose a whole lot of clients to, or never, we've never lost a client to Quest Trade because they're very different beasts. And if you're looking at somebody simply saying, oh, here's a portfolio, put it there, you know, it might be good for a smaller client or a very cost-conscious client or somebody that is just doing it themselves. The nice thing is they do have these model portfolios that will get you into a whole diversified area. And it's fairly simple. But and very good for perhaps a smaller client. But it's kind of interesting. They're not even the cheapest. So if you're actually looking at that type of thinking, there's a lot of other ones out there. Well, Simple, Nest, there's a, there's a few of them that are your robo-advisors. And so that's really comparing apples to apples. And of those, depending on where you, you know, the assets you have, they are sometimes the cheapest and sometimes they're not. And when, you, when you're doing something like this, and, and again, you use the phrase rightly so, do it yourself, or uh, you've either really got to do the research and find out exactly what you're doing, or you better already know what you're doing. Because, you know, again, it's like driving a car, and unless you've had a lesson or two and you know what you're doing, you could get yourself in trouble. Uh, yeah, you think about, dri- think about driving a car. I mean, you start off driving a car, and uh, it takes years to get good at it, right, and, and to be con- more and more confident as time goes by, different scenarios, different weather conditions, all of those things that happen. Um, and, and I think that um, for most people, we're so busy just grinding through our regular day-to-day job and life and relationships that we don't often have enough time to allocate to this to become knowledgeable enough, and, uh, and then execution becomes a problem. Things don't get done on a timely basis or get ignored or missed, and so there's, there's slippage, and that slippage is where there's an erosion in terms of the future value of what, you, what your money could have been worth. And this is a whole other side of the fee argument. When they're simply looking at, okay, we're charging 0.5% and the average advisor charges 2%. So there's that 1.5% difference, which they extrapolate saying, well, we're going to earn you 1.5% greater return. And that is far actually not even true. But that's what they extrapolate. And so then they say, oh, over many years, you'll end up with 
this greater amount of money. Well, that's so just investment focused. So when you look at all the other services that Andy and I provide, and and they don't, of course, they know about this, but they don't want to talk about these things. They don't want to. They want to use the same broad brush that there's no advisor doing anything. We're simply putting money in a couple of investments and see you later, which is not even com- close to comparing apples to apples. So when you look at you know situations, Andy, I'm sure you've done the same where we've seen clients a fortune in income tax. Um, and I know one particular case, I went back and I saw there was a mistake over five years. And there was well over twenty, thirty thousand dollars in tax savings, which we refiled for. Uh, another is preventing them from simply blowing themselves up. We've had a lot of people on two fronts. And this uh, year is a really good example in a pandemic year where people wanted to sell and put things in less risky investments. And then I also had people in the exact opposite. I think I should borrow money and buy now. And they were talking about specific stocks that might go up or might not go up, which I obviously suggested do not do that. Stick to the game plan. You might want to add more to your overall portfolio, but don't get too into the skinny branches, if you will, of risk. And so, you know, you'll, you'll, we've had discussions, and I'm sure you have, Andy, with Bitcoin or marijuana stocks and, you know, Tesla stocks now. And all these type of things, it's, it's, it's you know, they're, I, we don't hear a whole lot of people asking, I, I want to buy marijuana stocks now because they have not done well. But boy, two years ago, our NOR security specialist was getting a lot of calls about that. And thankfully, you know, you had to get in and out at the right time, which that's speculating. That is not even close. Uh, not to mention guiding, them, guiding, guiding clients through uh, selling a business or counsel, countless life events. And I know, Andy, uh, you're talking about amalgamating bank accounts. Well, there's also the side, okay, what about divorce? And what do you do with everything? Mm-hmm. A remarriage. How should you change your portfolio or your investments or your all your goals? Having a, a divorce, that's a massive impact on your on, on your whole financial plan. And it may mean you have to work longer, save more. Depends on what happens after that. So adoption, there's death. There's, of course, a death or inheritance and career transitions, blended families. We've gone over all these things over the years. And they all have an impact on your financial plan. So it's actually interesting. There's been a whole lot of public research from Vanguard, Advisor Alpha, uh, Morningstar Gamma. There's a whole lot of, I'd say there's five or six different articles trying to figure out what the value of advice is. In general, they all have different ways to calculate it. But at the end of the day, if you are dealing with a, a real financial planner, somebody with their CFP, somebody that's actually giving proper advice, it works out that it can add as much as 3% per year to your performance. And that is something that has come out in probably the last few years, but it's it's constantly coming back at around 3%. So it's actually interesting. In the last, uh, about two weeks ago, I had a client that sent me an email, and I love these emails. This client had been a client since 1992, 28 years ago. So I would have been 29 years old at the time. Um, it was really nice for them to entrust me with their funds at the time. They started with $3,000 plus $100 a month back then. They sent me an email a couple weeks ago thanking me that they had just crossed over the million-dollar mark. Mm, nice. And they were grateful. 
and would never have done it without them. And they went through a lot of the gyrations of different market conditions, um, putting their kids to university, having the kids leave leave their house, downsizing their home, all sorts of different things. And she actually asked, I guess, uh, you know, I'm looking for when the marching band going to come by, Don. There's no way we would have had this without you. And we just we just sent them a marching band Christmas ornament this week. So it's uh, the, the bottom line is back in 1992, their net worth was 300,000, including their house and mortgage, etc. And now simply the investments are greater than a million dollars. So that's what a financial planner can do for you, following a long-term financial plan. So you have to measure the value both quantitatively and qualitatively. And just looking at the peace of mind, knowing you have somebody working with you, and you know, are your wills up to date? How is your risk? Are you properly insured? Do you have too much insurance? Do you not have enough? What if I were to change my job? What if I lost my job? All these things come up in normal conversations with a financial planner, which none of this, of course, Questrate ever acknowledges. And this is the part that's interesting. They simply want to focus on this is cheaper than that which sometimes I, I look at cost and value are, are a very different thing. Cost is uh, really only an issue if there is no value. And when you're adding, on average, 3% per year value, our clients aren't talking about cost. So that it does make a difference. Extrapolating that 1.5% difference over years makes a very big difference. But is that really the case? So I was looking at, and this is kind of what got me started on this whole thing, is there was a full-page ad, and it said it showed their Quest Wealth Portfolio returns. And in the last six months, their return on their aggressive portfolio was 21.78%. Well, I looked at that, and that was from March 31st, basically the bottom of this pandemic, to September 30th. Then I said, okay, well, that's, you know, very questionable how they actually picked they they handpicked the time to make it look as good as they could and first of all why do you even want to look at six month returns this is a long-term performance so but right beside it they had the five-year returns which showed their aggressive portfolio at 40 percent i said holy smokes 40 percent but then i realized that's not 40 percent per year that's 40 percent over the whole five years i don't know if that's even compliant in our industry, Andy. I'm not sure. Uh, we we under a lot different rules, I think, than they are, perhaps. But I actually worked out the performance, and that performance was, you know, it's it's okay. I think it worked, it worked out to 6.96% return. So I happened to check out our iProfile performance for the exact same time. So there, that portfolio, by the way, is one-third Canadian, one-third U.S., and one-third international. Our RI profile isn't too far from that. It's 29% U.S., 40% Canadian, and 31% international. Well, our performance was 7.72% per year for the same five years. So apples-to-apples comparison, we actually outperformed them. And that was the kind of thing. So how are they getting 30%? You're going to retire up to 30% wealthier if their performance isn't even as good as ours. So I looked, I dug a little deeper. It's really hard to find any Quest Trade information because we've gone to Morningstar and other things. They don't even have 
um, they don't even show up. But fortunately, I was able to look through things, and if you added to them, and you say, okay, where are they? Well, that aggressive portfolio would show up if you compare apples to apples, and what we compared to would be F-class mutual funds in the Canadian market in comparing apples to apples to those exact same type of portfolios. And that, so F-class, by the way, do not include the advisory fee. And very similar to Questrade, there's no, advise, there's no advisory platform with Questrade. So you take, the, you take the advisory fee out. And so that aggressive portfolio came 292nd out of 395 competitors. Her, her, to be honest, that's almost the bottom quartile. It's only three spots out of being in the bottom quarter. Not a good performance at all. They are a third quartile, but I looked at also all their other ones. They have five funds in total. Four of the five were in the third quartile in performance. So below average. Yeah. Below average. They're not even competing. So how are they doing 30%? You're going to do 30% better if their performance is, in generally speaking, below average all the time. So at the end of the day, I think they should just be honest. I think honesty is always the issue, and they should just, you know, basically be straightforward. If you want a, a, a robo-advisor, Questrade is a, is a decent platform, as is well simple as is a few others. But the idea of saying we're going to retire you 30% with greater wealth, that couldn't be further from the truth. Did you guys say that I have a Christmas ornament coming? <laughs> It's on the way, Scott. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson, Andy Lister, and Don Fox. Christmas, or, Christmas ornaments and all. Oh, well, based we- on your finances, Scott, you, you and your wife are going to get separate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would hope so. We have two trees. Uh, we are planning your financial future. Andy Lister, Don Fox here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call us now, 905-529-7165. Leave a message. They will return your call. Quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call them now. Leave a message. 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. Talking about uh, the CERB and uh, as well, everything that's coming up, uh, mortgages, things that could affect the end of the year. Yeah, and, and into New Year, too, as you think about uh, wrapping up 2020. The um, uh, one thing, and I know it's been a lot of um, information put out there about CERB, and there's been so many different support programs that the government has had, but it's important to remember that CERB, that was a maximum of $500 a week uh, for up to 28 weeks, which if you qualified for the entire period, uh, would work out to $14,000. So roughly around mid-March till September, and um, that would you would have earned the $14,000, and assume, assuming you didn't work anywhere else during that time period. But for most people, and I was just running through the scenario with a client of mine's daughter, who she was making about $1,000 a week. So prior to uh, uh, the COVID shutdown in March, 
she uh, had earned roughly about uh, $12,000 and uh, sorry, $6,000 in the period from um, uh, March through uh, January, February, and March, 810. So at the end of the day, we started adding up what her income was going to be for the year. And uh, so she actually is going to have $14,000 from uh, CERB. And she made uh, throughout this year about another $18,000 on top of that. So her total income is going to be $32,000, and which actually puts her in a 20% marginal tax bracket. So it was not happy news to tell her that she's going to have a tax bill of around $2,800, about 20% of her CERB is going to have to go back to the government in April. And uh, so just planning for that, you know, she's got roughly 16 weeks between now and uh, the end of April. And so it's 175 bucks a week or 700 a month to set aside for tax purposes <clears throat> as you think about filing for 2020. In Ontario, you can earn about $15,700 and not pay any tax at all. So if you just had to serve and nothing else, you wouldn't owe any tax. But for most people, they probably worked prior to earning. You, had, you would have had to have earned at least $5,000 prior to getting the serve in the previous 12 months. So at minimum, you had five grand on top of that. So just be prepared for those that um, uh, had received CERB that get ready for a little tax payment in, uh, in April. Now, the other thing is I want to talk about is mortgage rates. And uh, I was kind of laughing before we uh, during the commercial break there. Probably the thing that uh, Don and I were least successful in predicting was interest rates over the last 10, 20 years. And I think about buying our own home, uh, you know, it, almost 30 years ago. In, in, and something that I had have never heard, on every mortgage renewal I've, I had for until it was paid off was that, sorry, your rates have gone up. It was the opposite. Every single renewal, the rates had come down, come down, come down, come down. And in fact, um, the standard sort of benchmark for where mortgage rates five-year terms would be would be the five-year Government of Canada bond. In 1981, the five-year Government of Canada bond was 18.8% per year for five years. Guess what the uh, five-year Government of Canada bond is today, Scott? Um, less than half, a quarter of that. Uh, it is, so 6%, 4%, no, 0.5. So less. 0.5%, half of 1% is the five-year Government of Canada bond right now. And um, to that extent, we are now seeing uh, five-year rates Posted rates in the 1.6 to 1.8 range, and there's even been advertising out there for a 1.33% mortgage rate. Now, even beyond that, think about this, and this is something I want people to consider. Uh, what about a 10-year rate? And if you've got debt at this point, you know, uh, you can now get a 10-year mortgage for 2%, same as the five-year mortgage was last year. So, it, it, you know, that's pretty impressive. And, and rates, but, you know, literally we have been in a 40-year decline for interest rates. Back in 2001, they were about 5.5%. 2006, 4.3%. 2011, 2.2%. And then the five-year government bond in 2016, 0.7%, and now 0.5%. So, so, Andy, so are you saying that people should lock up for 10 years? Based on our, our track record, maybe that's not good advice. Yeah, you know, we, we literally, there's been... 
as far as economic predictions, and we're not alone in this, Don, so it's okay. I don't feel too bad because every single economist and every single advisor has been wrong on interest <laughs> rates in terms of calling, calling the bottom. This is the bottom. There can only go up from here. Well, we probably should back off, right? Maybe it doesn't make sense, but I don't know. How low can you go below, below two? <laughs> and, and you don't even – well, we'll see. I should probably eat my words here and be careful. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we seriously now have people looking at the 10-year term as a way to sort of lock in these low rates and, uh, and certainly guarantee their rates. And house prices have gone up on average like about 13% in the last 12 months so across the country. So it's, it's – crazy what's happening in terms of um, the affordability of homes because of low interest rates and certainly it's driven up prices as well. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now, leave a message. We'll uh, call you back at 905-529-7165 and take a peek at the website andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old archive shows and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call them now. Leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Talking about delaying the Canada Pension Plan, this is always a big debate. It is, it is. I'll get to that just in a second, but just to piggyback on what Andy was saying, what a unique opportunity right now, because I think, you know, a lot of your listeners or listeners' children or friends, you know, may have mortgages right now at 3.5%, thinking they were outstanding rates, and they were, until all of a sudden they're like 1.7% for five years or 175 and even to the point that the line of credits that people have, uh, right now it's 2.45 is the prime rate, and a lot of the line of credit is at prime plus a quarter. So that would be 2.7. So what an opportunity right now if you can prepay your mortgage at 3.5 using your line of credit. So you can actually go 15% per year um, down on your mortgage. And so if you had $200,000 owing on your, mor- you know, your original mortgage, you could take 30000 out of your mortgage, pay down your line of credit at a debt rate, which might be about 1% less than you're paying on your mortgage. And then when your mortgage comes due a year from now, you may be able to lock up for the current rates, if they're still low, um, and, and lock up, say, at 2% for another five years. So anytime you have a chance to pay down more expensive debt, debt with cheaper debt, it's a great opportunity. Also, for those that are um, looking to renew, you can lock up three months in advance, sometimes four months in advance, and they will get the best rate in that four-month time. So if, if rates do go up, uh, make sure you do this now so that you can lock that rate in at the current low rates. So great opportunities for those that do have some mortgages out there. And you should be speaking to your financial advisor. What's the best way to go about dealing with it right now? But well, there was a cool article I was reading in the Globe Mail a couple weeks ago talking about Canada Pension Plan. I know Andy and I have been talking about this, oh gosh, I don't know, five, ten years now, how delaying Canada Pension Plan is a good thing. And normally, it's always these people that say, I'm taking it at age 60 because you never know how, how long I'm going to live. And I worked hard for that money, and I want it now, 
and better bird in the hand than two in the bush, all these reasons they rationalize. But what is the lifetime cost? So what this article said is, let's look at this as a cost rather than what if I live to this age, you'll break even. Well, no, let's look at this as an all-out cost. And a lot of the articles these days are actually discussing delaying it to age 70. Forget about 60. Forget about 65. Let's look at delaying till age 70. So, and so what would the life, lifetime cost? It's going to be at least $100,000. And I repeat, $100,000 lifetime cost by taking it early. So for those that are saying, okay, I was talking to a friend of mine and he took it at age 60, it's a good thing, talk to your financial advisor, work through the numbers, and make sure that person you know, is, is got a CFP, is looking after your best interests, or she is looking after your best interests, because I'm telling you right now, it rarely makes sense to take it early, unless there's a health issue. At age 60, in Canada today, the average male lives to 85.9 years of age. So call it 86. The average female lives to 88 and a half. So that's a pretty good time you're going to be collecting this Canada Pension Plan. So what I looked at is, let's say, and right now the maximum is 11.75 a month. So let's just round it to 1,200 a month, and this is indexed all the time. Plus, with contributions, that limit keeps the uh, the the amount you receive, the benefit amount, is going up. So I wouldn't be shocked if it's at around 1,200 in the very near future. So let's say you're getting, you could get 1,200 a month by waiting till age 65. But if you take it right now, you could get $768 a month. Very tempting. It's like box number one, box number two. And box number three would be, well, if I wait till age 70, I'll get $1,704. But that's a long time, 10 years. Well, I don't know about you guys. I think the last 10 years have ripped by pretty quick. So I worked this out. And if you say, okay, that 36% decrease, and I, I, from 65, and I'm going to get $768 per month times 10 years, works out I've got a $92,160 head start than waiting till age 70. That seems like an awful lot of money, which it is. Well, if you are a woman and you're going to live to age 88 and a half, by the time you hit age 70, you would collect... 582, sorry, if you waited to age 70 to start collecting, and you lived to 88 and a half, you would get $582,000. Now, if you start age 60 and took that discount that a lot of people are doing, you would get $355,000. That is a $228,000 difference by not waiting till 70. Now, if you did say, okay, I'm going to start at 65, and you did live to 88 and a half, you would get $482 of CPP benefit. Now, this is not including indexing or anything like that. That is straight numbers. Bottom line is there's a $100,000 difference between waiting from 65 to 70, and there's a $228,000 for a lady starting at age 60 versus waiting until 70 if they simply live to the average age. And by the way, you also have to take into account smoking and, and education, blue-collar job versus white-collar job. There's all sorts of factors, and you should speak to your financial advisor about this and seeing which makes sense to you. If you have health, health issues, certainly you may want to take it earlier. But 
we do find that a lot of people, again, just average, 88 and a half years is the average for a woman and 86 is the average for a man if they made it to 60. Those numbers alone should tell you it's better to wait till age 70 to start collecting your CPP. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now. Leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old archive shows as well as ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great day. And uh, I guess that's it. We'll see you in the new year. Yes. Happy holidays, everyone. Take yes, care. Yes, and have a prosperous new year. All right. Take care, gentlemen. We'll see you in the new year. Thank you. Bye now. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.